So it's the first Sunday in Advent, and uh, we're to the end of the uh, uh, Beatitudes. We're going to continue on in the Sermon on the Mount as we go through the rest <clears throat> of the year. Uh, this is uh, the last uh, Beatitude, uh, and uh, a good one for us today to read and to think about uh, um, as the first Sunday in Advent. Um, Advent uh, is... Uh, traditionally, a time where the church remembers the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and cries out for his second coming. Nobody cries out for the second coming of Jesus like people who are persecuted. Uh, nobody uh, wants to see Jesus come and interrupt the plans and the way the world is working and running more than people who are persecuted. Um, the advent of Jesus is an interruption, right? When Jesus comes, when he came the first time, it was an interruption. Uh, and now, as we long for him to come again, it will interrupt uh, the course of uh, the conflict of the, with the world, the flesh and the devil. But for many of us, it would uh, interrupt our plans and our comfort. Uh, and, um, and all of that, uh, it's a good thing. So um, in light of that, let me pray, and then we'll jump in on Matthew 5, 11 to 12. Uh, pray with me. Lord, as we come to you today, we rejoice uh, that by your spirit, by your gospel, you have empowered your saints uh, from the very beginning to take joy in suffering uh, for your account and for the account of your righteousness. Teach us what that means. Teach us how to rejoice uh, in persecution. And even more than that, teach us how to rejoice in persecution and to love and pray for and serve our persecutors. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 to 12, text is in the bulletin, also uh, up on the screens behind me. This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So... Um, this beatitude is unique in the fact that it commands us not so much to do something, but to feel something. And I say that because for many of us, feelings are hard to come by. And for many of us, feelings is all we have. Some of us are just one giant exposed nerve, and some of us are... Uh, uh, pretty closed off from our feelings. We had some hubbub going on over the holiday, and my daughter was there uh, with us, and, and I go to her for all things uh, that are, you know, I, I don't know, contemporary and uh, feminine and all that kind of stuff. And I said to her, like, tell me how to feel about this particular thing. And she looked at me and she said, I grew up with two brothers and with you. How do you expect me to know anything about feelings? 
Yeah, point, point taken, sweetie. I, I, uh, I don't know whether to be encouraged or discouraged by that. So, yeah, so she, she let me have that, right? But what Jesus says here, uh, and Luke, I'm going to put my notes up here, is for us to rejoice, but, and rejoice, that's a church word, right? One we're familiar with. But he says, rejoice and be glad. I mean, he, he doubles down on that when you are persecuted on the account of Jesus Christ, and as he said last week, his righteousness. And so as, as we hear that, I mean, it's important for us to begin to kind of unpack that a little bit. How in the world is it possible for the persecuted wrongly persecuted, falsely persecuted, those who are lied about, those who are, uh, lose their property and uh, even their lives, how is it that Jesus can say here at the end of these, this series of blessings, listen, you are blessed when you suffer persecution for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so, not only that, are you blessed, but you can rejoice. So as we look at this this morning, what I want us to do is kind of flip things around a little bit. I want us to talk, first of all, about the rejoicing and the be glad part and how, how we get there. And then we'll look at uh, what uh, the nature of persecution is and, and a little bit about how, uh, for us, those of us who know really almost nothing about persecution how uh, we, can, we, can, uh, we can think about that. So what Jesus is going to get here is that we can rejoice in persecution primarily for two reasons. The first one, he says, is on his account, and as Isaiah talked about last week, it was on account of righteousness. These things are synonymous with each other, right? That Jesus is the source of righteousness, and, and so that when we suffer persecution, when we suffer loss, when we are hated, we are reviled, and we are lied about, for the sake of Jesus Christ, uh, he says that there's a, a place for us to find joy in that. And the first place we find joy uh, in that is to have a sense of our fellowship with Jesus. Uh, one of the things that we forget, one of the things that does not, we, we focus so much upon the atoning nature of Jesus' death on the cross that we forget that Jesus' death on the cross was really a martyrdom, right? I mean, in the, in the sense that he was killed for who he was. He was killed as someone who challenged the religious and political structures of the day. He was killed as someone who came preaching the word of God, speaking the gospel, and as a result of that, he was killed, right? So when we, when we gather as his people and we, we think about that, it's not just that his death was atoning, it absolutely was, and that is the pathway to forgiveness and righteousness, but it's also a reminder to us that from the very beginning, as Jesus says here, even back to the time of the prophets, where the word of God is proclaimed, where the kingdom of God is advancing, there will be resistance, and there will be difficulty, and there will be folks that, do not, uh, that don't like that. And in fact, there will be people who will persecute the church thinking that they're doing a good thing. That's what he says there in John 16. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering surface to God. <clears throat> it's just a few, uh, it's not long after Jesus says those words that the first uh, Christian martyr, Stephen, is stoned to death outside the walls of Jerusalem by a religious mob. One of the things that you have to see about the first century, persecution of the church in the first century was that most people thought Christianity was immoral. 
that they believed that was bad for the society and the culture, that they believed that, that Christians uh, did a lot of things that hurt uh, certainly the economy and certainly the kind of the cultural uh, cohesion. And so they were persecuted for that uh, because people believed that what they stood for and what they did was, uh, was wicked even as there were uh, clear uh, things that the church did of serving the poor and the weak and uh, the dying and uh, the infirm. Nevertheless, that's what people did. And they felt like that the the church was uh, a a negative uh, um, institution uh, in the society and the culture. Next slide. Uh, but also what we see here is, is that there's a deeper and even a greater reason for there to be rejoicing when the church is persecuted. Uh, we read in Revelation, you know, that great series of those seals being opened. Well, when the fifth seal is open, we saw this. John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So even right now, in the throne room of heaven, there is an altar, and underneath that altar are thousands of of souls dressed in white, crying out to God, crying out to Jesus for his second advent. It's an honored place. And so we should never forget the fact that uh, throughout the the history of the proclamation of the gospel, there has been uh, 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 places, time, uh, even today, where the people who name Jesus Christ as Lord, where the people who proclaim his gospel, where the people serve the weak and the poor and the oppressed are persecuted. But Jesus looks at that and he sees that not only as a place where we, he, we, uh, his people especially identify with him, but the, what happens in heaven and what happens in eternity is, is even more dynamic for people like that. Because what we see here, next slide, Luke, is, is this. He says that your reward is great in heaven. Now, here's one of the things about this is that uh, we don't spend a lot of time talking about reward being great in heaven. We, in fact, we probably don't spend enough time talking about heaven at all. Because, because the fact is, what we tend to think about is, well, if you talk about heaven too much, people become useless in this life, right? We, 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 uh, we think that. Well, the, the fact of the matter is, we read in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. There you go, rejoice and be glad, Right? the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What is the dearest thing you own? Is it a stock? 
Is it a vintage car? Is it a piece of silverware? Is it a ring or a necklace or a set of earrings? How about a pair of plaid pants? Right? Now, plaid pants is a really stupid thing to hold dear, isn't it? But I hold these dear. I do. I love my plaid pants. I love, look forward to Advent and Christmas where I get to break them out and wear them. Because once you hit 60, you don't care what people think about the way you dress and so you do what you want to do. I love these pants. It would upset me if I, when I went to get them out of the closet this morning, I thought, Lord, please don't let the moths have gotten to my pants while they've been hanging in the closet for the last 10 months. It's a dumb thing, isn't it? That somebody could be that uh, attached to their pants. But it's a dumb thing that you are attached to whatever it is you're attached to. Just as dumb. Just as dumb. Because if you're in Christ, there's something better. Something much better that lasts forever. Do you believe that? You see, what, uh, what he, he, Tim Keller says this, what you do today is shaped by what you believe about tomorrow. In other words, what you, will think ha- what you think will happen after death affects how you live now. Right? So the, so the fact is, you know, if I am moved to be generous, if I am moved to suffer, if I am moved to, to do something, it, it's not wrong for me to think, my Lord told me that great would be my joy and great would be my reward in heaven. And, and, and that reward, I'm not, it's not like I'm in some kind of competition. It's not like you're running for student government president or something like that. It's not that. But the, the reward that you have is greater glory for your Savior, greater glory for the kingdom of God. And so that you are so motivated and moved by that because of the work that Jesus has done for you that you are willing to live this life like it is, temporary, weighed down by sin, affected by suffering and death. So that what we know is and what we lean towards is what he says, that you have a better possession and an abiding one. So what Jesus is saying to us is, if you believe that, if this is true, if you take me at my word on this, then, then the Lord can pry your fingers off these things that we think, without them, life would not be, not be worth living. And instead, embrace the richness, the power of the promise that he gives us because he has overcome the world on our behalf. So that's a great promise, right? And, 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 and obviously, you know, this, uh, when you are persecuted or when you are suffering because of uh, the fact that you believe Jesus is Lord, Uh, what's going to give you joy? Well, the thing that's going to give you joy is to know that Jesus suffered, but more than that, Jesus awaits you in heaven. We have that great picture, right, of Stephen when he is dying and he looks into heaven. He doesn't see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. He sees Jesus standing. Commentators make a lot about this. Why is that? I don't know, but some speculate that Jesus is standing to greet him. What a compelling picture, right? That your Lord would stand and welcome you into his kingdom forever. 
Next slide. Um, but here's the thing. If you want to know more about what the reward is that awaits us, uh, especially the persecuted church, Jesus has just spent the first part of this sermon, these Beatitudes, describing to us what uh, uh, the kingdom of God brings. He says that we will see God. He says that we'll be shown mercy. He says that we will be identified as a part of God's family. Keep going. That we'll experience God's comfort. That we will be co-owners of the whole world. And that we will be satisfied with personal and universal righteousness. You see, that's, that's all the things that, that Jesus has been saying as he outlines for us these, um, uh, 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 these beatitudes. And so, so he wants us to hear this and to understand that his heart is passionate towards those who will suffer and maybe even die as a result of their proclamation, of their identification with Jesus Christ. Now, let's ask the question then. We have that great promise. We have that great hope. Uh, and we rest in that. Uh, even as today, there are places all around us and in the world where Christians are incarcerated, Christians are punished, Christians are even killed for maintaining uh, a faithful witness. But what about us? What about us? What about the vast majority of the people in the, within the hearing of my voice have never really been persecuted? And I said this at the early service, and I'm not making light of this in any way. But people have asked me in the past, like, oh, you know, ooh, America is going down the tubes, and, you know, are, are they going to come after us and persecute us? And, and um, I don't know, maybe, probably. Um, well, what do you think is going to happen? I'm like, well, you know, I guess we'll lose our tax-exempt status. And people are like, <gasps> and I, I've thought about that. I love my tax-exempt status. I am, after all, a religious professional. But I th picture standing before Paul the Apostle and saying, hey, brother, I see you're suffering. We've, we lost our tax-exempt status as he holds his chains up for me there to say, yeah, there you go. I'm like, well, I'm an American, see, and uh, this matters, right? So, uh, so dumb. It could get worse. It might get worse, and I don't mean to make light of that, but the, the fact of the matter is what we have to see that, that is going on here is something that uh, probably needs to challenge us a little bit about uh, how we might experience uh, persecution. Next slide, please, Luke. So, uh, if you live your life as if Jesus is Lord, sooner or later, you will experience some sort of conflict with the world. The early church, the first century church, was persecuted largely because they would not say Caesar was Lord. Now, they were good citizens, right? What did Jesus say? Render unto Caesar those things which are Caesar's. Render unto God those things which are God's. But the fact is, if Caesar demands something that is only belongs to Jesus, then the church had to say, no, we won't, we won't do that. We won't go there. 
So if we lead our lives, if the church bears witness and leads our life as if our allegiance is first and foremost to Jesus Christ, not to a political party or a political movement or a cultural movement or an economic theory, then we will, at some point and in some time, be in conflict with the world. How will this manifest itself? Well, I think it will manifest itself. As James says in in, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, here's the thing that happens with that, right? I mean, one of the things, we read that verse, and one of the things that that tends to happen to us, depending on kind of where your orientation is this morning, you like one side of that verse more than the other. You're like, I'm going to keep myself unstained from the world, and I'm going to make sure all my friends do too, (laughs) right? Um, Or... You're going to be thinking, you know, what's really important in the world is that the weak and the oppressed get served. Well, these things are not in conflict with one another, and there's not one that is more important than the other. They're both equally important, and James wants the church to bear witness to both of these. And so, as the church takes its stand with the oppressed and the poor and the weak, the unborn, the infirm, the broken, the prisoner, we'll find ourselves in conflict. And if we say that Jesus is Lord, and He says how we view our money, how we view our spending, how we view our consuming, If Jesus has the right to tell me how to live my life because he is Lord, then he has the right to look over my shoulder on those things and even to say to me, he has the right to tell me who I sleep with. So sooner or later, this will put us in conflict. Nicholas Kristof, a writer for the New York Times, writes often about uh, social issues. He travels all over the world to go and see uh, um, uh, oppressed people. And one of the things that he says is he cannot stand Christians, particularly he writes about Roman Catholics a lot, but he can't stand Christians because of their stance on sexual ethics and on uh, abortion. But he has to admire them because in conflict zones all around the world, the last people to leave, in fact, people who stay until they're dead, are Christian missionaries, often Catholic nuns. And it makes him wonder, what's going on there? You see, there's a powerful witness there that goes on where we stand. You know, we don't identify ourselves with any particular political movement. We don't really identify ourselves with a particular economic theory. We don't identify ourselves with that. We identify ourselves first and foremost with Jesus. And there's going to be some overlap with that about some parts of the political world, wherever they are on the spectrum. 
But our allegiance isn't to any of that. We belong to Jesus, and Jesus belongs to us. Right? But really, you know what? The, the truth of the matter is, the spirit of the age today is not so much and where we will find ourselves in conflict and difficulty. Honestly, in my, my humble opinion, and I am a pastor of a small church in a small town, uh, in a small place. So this is just my opinion about this. But I really think the conflict that we will experience against the spirit of the age, which is much among us, frankly, is that we say Jesus is Lord, but we live and we swim and breathe and eat in an ethos that says, I am Lord. Even Christians, right? And so as we begin to say, you know what, Jesus is the one who has ultimate authority over me, then, then that will put us more and more and more in a situation where we are in conflict. But the great news about this is a, a culture, a society, a church that says, really, I'm Lord, that what's important is me finding my own way in the world. What's important is that I become self-actualized. What's important for me is that I am happy and I am fulfilled and I am satisfied in life. By the way, there's, no, there's not much room for persecution in that vision of life. But, but the fact is, if we put ourselves in, in a position to challenge that, we have a way to tell the world, to tell our brothers and sisters in the church who, who live like that and one another to get off that treadmill. Because if you are your own, and if you are your own Lord, how do you know that you are living your best life? Can you tell yourself that? Can you trust yourself to tell you that? Or do you need somebody else to tell you that? When in fact you were created to belong to someone else. And that true freedom, true joy, true happiness is found belonging to your creator, redeemer. And that that is the thing that drives and, and, and shapes us. And insofar as we, we believe that, and insofar as we take Jesus' word at that, then there's a spiritual dynamic at work in people like that that enables us to do something uh, that is even crazier than we might imagine. And that is that it puts us in the, with the ability to be in conflict with the ethos of the world and to love that world. To be world-affirming in the sense that we say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that true joy, true rejoicing, true gladness is found in coming to the end of ourselves and seeing that we belong first and foremost to Jesus. Because I think for most of us, that the fact is that we think our own comfort, our own self-expression, our own autonomy really is our Lord. And that is a terrible prison. That prison is worse than any prison you might be in because you follow Jesus. Next slide. Um, 
So what we have to do is, what we have to come to grips with, and one of the things that will help us with this is that we can't afford to proclaim a generic God to ourselves or to the culture, that we must proclaim the God revealed fully in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we will find ourselves perpetually worshiping an idol of our own making. The so-called God of this culture, as, as this man says, is actually projections of our political, sociological, and psychological values and fears. In other words, the thing that I worship is the thing that's, that, that is going to satisfy me, help me, make me feel better. And we believe that these things, sociologically, politically, whatever, are the things that are going to set us free. When what Jesus offers by his life, death, and resurrection is the freedom that says, even if they kill you for my sake, you have reason for joy because what awaits you is so much richer and far greater than anything this present age has to offer. The hope that we have today as Kevin prayed earlier about uh, the fact that we can go to our death and go to judgment with our heads held high is even greater when we know that what Jesus says to us is, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a tiny bit. I will make you Lord over much. You see, that is the animating feature that Jesus wants us to rest in today as we proclaim and as we struggle to believe that he is Lord and not we ourselves. And so he gives us this meal where we come together and we proclaim his death. Hear these words, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, uh, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you um, pray with me uh, confessing our sins uh, using this Puritan prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, by your steadfast love and atoning sacrifice, you took our place and proved yourself to be the friend of sinners. You were punished that we might be pardoned and broken that we would be made whole. In your resurrection, you demonstrated your power over death and secured our future, triumphant, redeemed, and blessed eternally. While we await your return, we confess that we have been faithless and anxious in heart. In our restlessness, we have sought peace for our souls and a salvation of our own making. Apart from you, we find ourselves dangerously proud, alone, and worn. Forgive us, Savior, renew our faith, and restore to us the true rest you alone offer us. Amen.
Brothers and sisters, hear these words of encouragement. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. The scriptures tell us on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it, just as I do now, ministering in his name, and he gave it to his disciples. One of the things that we have to to recognize about uh, ourselves and about uh, the table is, and it's an interesting thing that we confess our sins uh, before we... uh, before we come and we make confession of sin a a part of our worship uh, every week is uh, this confession of sin uh, is a great confession of sin. It really is. But one of the things that you have to recognize about it is it's not all that true. Because these are some sins, yes, that we gladly participate in, but there's a bunch of other ones that we participate in that we haven't confessed here, and there's a bunch of other ones that we don't even know we're doing. Just because we swim and move in a world that is full of sin, that it's the world, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat. I hear people say sometimes, they come to me for counseling and they say, I need you to help me see my blind spots. Well, by definition, you can't see your blind spot because you're blind. Now, maybe I can point it out to you, uh, but the fact is, for most of us, most of the time, most of the things, we don't even know we are blind to these things. And you know what? Jesus knows that about you. He knew that about you when he came. And he knew that about you when he died. And he knew that about you when he raised you from the dead. And he will know that about you when he welcomes you into his heaven. That's the good news, whereby we rejoice and we are glad this morning because the gospel is so rich and so free. I should repent of my sin, big and small, but my sin is so great, I don't even see it all. I'm not even that aware of it, but Jesus, who does see it all, comes lives, dies, rises again, and overcomes that for me. Many of us have tied ourselves too much to politics. Many of us have uh, associated the gospel with a particular economic theory. Many of us have tied ourselves to a particular understanding of the gospel that works one way or the other, and yet Jesus stands completely apart from that. And boy, is that ever good. That is great news for us today.
Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Yes, but Jesus Christ is the only hope. And so our weak grasp on him does not keep his strong grasp on us from seeing us through to the end. If that's your hope, and you have proclaimed that to a body of believers somewhere, he welcomes you today to be nourished, to be strengthened, to be encouraged, and to be reminded that this Lord we worship, this Lord we anticipate coming back, was he himself killed. And yet for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning the shame. That's our Savior. That's our Lord. That's our hope. If that's your hope today, you proclaim that to a body of believers somewhere, he welcomes you to come and to taste his goodness, to be renewed and to see again how much Jesus loves you and how much he is for you. Uh, as the elders come down front, let me just uh, tell you a couple of things to keep in mind as you come forward. Uh, there are instructions in front of each one of the uh, sets of trays that tell you what, uh, that all the bread is gluten-free. Some have juice, some have wine. Uh, if you're new here with us, visiting with us, what you'll find is two cups, one with juice on the top and one with a tiny little wafer of uh, gluten-free bread uh, underneath that. Um, on Monday night, the elders met, and one of the things that we talked about was, as we're masked up here talking to you, uh, that the elders want to say a word of blessing to you as you come forward, that Jesus loves you, that he's for you, or whatever, whatever their particular thing is. And, and they're afraid you can't hear them because they're masked up. So if you see an elder shouting at you through his mask today, he is not rebuking you because you are in the wrong line. He is doing that to try to communicate to you that, uh, uh, that Jesus is for you and that he loves you. Once everyone is served, uh, we will uh, take uh, the bread and, uh, and the cup together. If you need to come forward and uh, take it back to your family, you're welcome to do that. If you cannot come forward for whatever reason, raise your hand and we'll do our best uh, to get you uh, the elements uh, uh, of the Lord's body and blood.